This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. I move on to the church in Pergamon. Page 126. Some 65 miles north of the city of Smyrna, 15 miles from the Aegean Sea, lay the city of Pergamum. Today it is Bergama. Its name has been perpetuated in the English term parchment, in French parchment, Dutch pergament, Spanish pergamino. And this refers to Skins, animal skins prepared for writing purposes. And this was all due to a trade embargo from the Egyptians who were unwilling to sell paper products to Pergamon. There's all the history for you to read. I move on. To verse 12 and 13. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, He who holds a sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. Now, what do we do with the statement where Satan's throne is? Does Satan live in a certain city in this world? Well, some people say, and then they mention names. I'm not going to do that right now. But in Pergamon, we can say, yes, it was a center of pagan religion. Next, to a traveler coming from the east, the Acropolis, that is the high point of the city, had the appearance of a throne. Yes, the altar of Zeus, Soter, Zeus, Savior, if you please, seemed to be a throne. And then we have Asclepius, Soter, the god of healing Asclepius was identified with the serpent, still present in medical emblems today. And Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. Now look at all these meanings for the words Satan's throne. Well, we can go through them one by one. But the fifth meaning is the best. On page 129, the fifth explanation is incisive. While the fourth interpretation calls attention to Satan's deception, the fifth stresses Satan's destructive power in persecuting God's people. Christians who refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and God, Dominus et Deus, 
faced confiscation of their property, exile, or death. If we consider that Antipas was killed and that John was exiled because of Jesus' testimony, then this fifth explanation fits the overall context. We read about their attitude. You are holding on to my name. Good. You did not renounce your faith in me. Good. Even as in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you as Satan lives. Despite the hardships that the Christians in Pergamum endured, they remained faithful to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They're commended for holding on to the name of Jesus. But making the Roman authorities enforce emperor worship and its subsequent oppression, Satan sought to exploit the weaknesses in the church of those members who might be tempted to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution resulted in death, as is evident in the case of Antipas. This may be an abbreviated form of the name Antipater. possible. But this has nothing to do with life and death. His life is characterized by the designation, my faithful witness. And Jesus himself is also known as the faithful one. He was killed where Satan lives. Living near the residence of Satan Followers of Jesus Christ can expect to endure both persecution and death. Their habitation is, and their habitation and that of Satan happen to be the same, and so the devil is one who is present. Jesus told his disciples that they are in the world but not of the world. John 17. He assigns his people to take the redemptive message of salvation everywhere on this troubled earth. He as the victor has said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. This victorious Jesus shares his victory with his followers who go forth into the world with the knowledge that God's word never returns void. And that word is never bound. Now the rebuke, verses 14 to 16. However, I have a few things against you in that you have there those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be a stumbling block before the Israelites to make them eat food offered to an idol and commit fornication. So even you have those who similarly hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, we already have dealt with the Nicolaitans. We have dealt with Balaam. In the church in Ephesus. Now, while the church in Ephesus exercised discipline and expel these people from the church, the church in Pergamum did not. 
Satan's servants enter the local congregation and start to influence the members deceitfully with the lifestyle incompatible with those who follow Jesus. We have no information about the identity of the perpetrators. The words you have there, those, can mean that they had entered the church and had been accepted as bona fide members or that they were influenced by people from outside the church. Jesus calls to mind the story of Balaam and Balak recorded in Numbers 22 through 25. We assume that the second and third generation Christians in Pergamum were sufficiently acquainted with the account of Israel's history that the writer did not spell it out in detail. So here we read about Balaam and Balak. We learn by inference that after Balaam's triple failure to curse the Israelites, he lured them into committing adultery with Midianite women, eating meat offered to idols, and worshipping pagan gods. Look up Numbers 31, 16, in the context of Numbers 25. Let's do that for just a moment. Maybe an eye-opener. Take a moment out to look at Numbers 31, verse 16. Okay, I read... They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor so that the plague struck the Lord's people. Now there is also a reference and I don't know if I have it right here which tells us that also Balaam was killed. I do not see it right here. And I think it is somewhere in this chapter. Pardon me? Verse 8. Thank you. Appreciate that. Among their victims were Evi, Rikam, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. Notice what Balaam did. He wanted to have the income from King Balak. He was going to curse and God overpowered him and said, no, instead of a curse, you pronounce a blessing. Three times in a row was the donkey involved as well. And then he says, well, if I can do it by way of my Word, that is, blessing, a curse, now become a blessing. Then I will try to lead the people astray by way of fornication, immorality, and eating food offered to an idol. And God says, that's it. And he kills him. That's it. This is really not for... Okay, I read, 
I hope I am right on target now. Balaam, bottom of page 130, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the Israelites to make them eat food offered to an idol and commit fornication. The teaching of Balaam, the teachings of Balaam were not so much doctrine as practice, indulging in sexual immorality with Moabite women, the eating of food sacrificed to idols, and the worship of these idols. This was the stumbling block that Balak, following Balaam's advice, placed before the people of Israel to make them fall into sin. The Israelites were invited to participate in the pagan fertility rites of the Moabite people, whose women enticed the Israelites' men to engage in sexually immoral acts. This was a stumbling block, the trap set for them. A stumbling block brought about death for the Israelites. A plague struck and killed some 24,000 of them. Now I mention here Numbers 25 verse 9 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 44. Note footnote 44. For the difference in total numbers, 44,000 in Numbers 25 and 23,000 in 1 Corinthians 10, that obviously... Excuse me one moment. What I'm talking about is, what do you do when someone says to you, that is a mistake, can't you see? And you are supposed to be an endurantist. You say there are no errors in the Bible. Well, here's one, you scoop it up. Now, oh well, mm, I don't know. I think I better ask my professor. And what does the professor say? My answer would be, that's a round number. That is, in the Old Testament in Numbers, it was rounded off as 24,000, a bit on the high side. Paul probably had more insight because he also had tradition on his side. We don't have that body of tradition anymore. It's gone. But if you read the New Testament, every now and then you pick up signs that was tradition. And tradition had 23,000 and then some. So we're talking about round numbers. This is not a mistake. Okay, in Pergamum, people who followed the teachings of Balaam set a trap for the followers of Christ to seek personal safety by participating in the practices of those who assembled for emperor worship. What do you do if you have to belong to a union which has no use for Christ and for his followers and for the word of God. Do you say, well, I couldn't care less. I need food on the table. I disregard everything that is said in the Bible in order to get a job. And there you have problems. And that's only one in today's world. Then the question comes up, may you eat meat that is for sale at the meat market. 1 Corinthians 10.25 Paul talks about it. Not only in chapter 10.25 but also in chapter 8 
of 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul in Corinth had to deal with the same thing as the people in Pergamon. Why? Because people were asked to belong to a guild, a union. And being a guild member meant you participate of worship services in an idol temple and then worship the idol and also partake of food offered to an idol. And Paul says that's impossible. You belong to Christ and you partake of the Lord's table, the food and drink, the bread and the wine. Okay, we know from Jesus' letter to the Ephesians that the teachings and practices of the Nicolaitans were an abomination to Jesus. Even though the information concerning these people is scant, we assume that the lifestyle of the Nicolaitans was characterized by the sins of sexual immorality, eating food offered to idols, and perverting apostolic teachings. Stressing Christian liberty, they apparently taught that physical activities pertaining to sex and food were not sinful. In God's sight, however, engaging in sexual acts with temple prostitutes and entering pagan temples to eat food consecrated to a pagan god were violations of the Decalogue. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not commit adultery. These are the laws that God has given us. God is holy and so His people must strive for holy conduct. Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. This is the second time around now for Nicolaitans. They enter the church with deceptive teachings and practices. We have no further knowledge of Nicolaitans. They were antagonists to the Christian faith in the midst of spiritual detriment to the believers. Verse 16, Repent, therefore, if not, I will come to you quickly and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The verb to repent occurs twelve times in Revelation. Eight of them are addressed to the churches in Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, and Laodicea. They're commanded to repent. The other four are in the past tense and refer to unbelievers who refuse to do so. Now the Christians of Pergamum had to repent of their failure to expel the Nicolaitans and their followers from among them. They had to see the error of their way, for if Jesus hated the works of the, of the Nicolaitans, so should his people. He called the Christians to turn their laxity into watchfulness, to enforce spiritual discipline, and to expel from among them the Nicolaitans and their adherents. Jesus says, I will come quickly. Christ's coming refers not to the second coming, note, but to his imminent judgment that is swift and certain. The Nicolaitans would, have to, would not have to wait until the second coming for Jesus to execute the threat. As the Midianites 
and Balaam experienced God's judgment in the lifetime, so the Nicolaitans would soon encounter Jesus as warrior in their lifespan. During the battle that Israel fought against the Midianites at God's command, the Israelites killed Balaam. Notice that the Lord calls the church to repentance but declares war on the Nicolaitans. He will fight them with a double-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. And with this sword he slays the wicked. Those who are serving Satan and are bent on destroying the church meet the sword of her warrior and her victorious Lord. The good news is that God works out all things for good to those who love and serve Him. All those who turn to the Lord and repent experience His love, grace, and mercy. By contrast, He forsakes all those who have forsaken Him. The promise, verse 17. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. For everyone who overcomes... I will give hidden manna and I will give a white stone and on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. We're talking here about hidden manna, Israel's food in the desert until the people crossed the Jordan and entered Canaan. Now, why hidden? Well, God instructed Moses to place a jar of manna in the Ark of the Covenant, and thus it was hidden from sight. According to the writer of 2 Maccabees 2, verses 4 through 7, at the destruction of Solomon's temple, Jeremiah hid the tabernacle with the Ark and the altar of incense in a cave of Mount Nebo and sealed its entrance. The Jews looked for the coming of the Messianic age when they would eat the hidden manna. The Christians acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah who ushered in the Messianic age. Ever since the coming of Jesus, his followers have hidden, have eaten the hidden manna and enjoyed his blessings. Jesus called himself the bread of life and contrasted it with the manna that the Israelites ate in the desert. This life-giving bread is indeed the Christian spiritual food and the hidden manna. It is hidden from view for the unbeliever, but is available to all those who put their faith in Christ. And now you have the meaning of that white stone. Well, there are various ways of trying to come to a solution. One is precious stones fell from heaven along with manna. It's only a legend. Number two, white stones were cast in courts of justice to signify exoneration of the accused black stones to condemn him. But the text does not say that the overcoming casts a white stone, but that he receives a white stone. Third, the white object made of steel, wood, or stone cast called tessera granted its possessor certain privileges in society. But the durability of these substances is questionable. Number four, 
A white stone could be used as an amulet or charm, but this custom belongs to sorcery, not to salvation. Number five, buildings in Pergamum in John's day were made of dark brown stone. Inscriptions in these edifices were cut into blocks of white marble. Colin Hemer observes, honorific decrees of the city repeatedly stipulate that the record of its benefactors shall be engraved on white stone. The objection is that the Greek word sephos in the text means pebble, not stone. Now, then we have two more. The breastplate of the high priest had twelve stones, each of which had the name of the tribe written on it. Similarly, a white stone with the name of the individual believer on it is always in God's presence. And number seven. The stone may be a translucent, precious stone like a diamond on which the name of Christ is written. The name of Christ is written on the foreheads of the saints. And all I can say is that the last two interpretations are the most helpful. The last one seems the strongest and receives support from other passages. And that's about all I can say on that particular point. We go on to the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, the verses 18 through 29. Page 136. Verse 18, to the church, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like exquisite brass. The expression, Son of God, may mean that Jesus addressed Jews in Thyatira, who rejected his divinity although the letter gives no indication of a Jewish presence in the city, we cannot rule out their influence. The expression also is relevant to the pagan society of that day, which regarded both Caesar and Apollo as sons of God. But Jesus is the one and only Son of God, who is above all other gods. With eyes of flaming fire, nothing escapes him as he himself states, that he searches the hearts and minds. Into Jesus' holy presence, nothing sinful can enter or be hidden. With his eyes of flaming fire, he dispels the darkness and burns away impurities. Jesus takes a stand in the city of Thyatira with feet like exquisite brass. This alloy is durable, stable, and firm. The gleam of the metal attracts attention so that the population takes note of Jesus' presence. As it takes up permanent residency in the city, so should his followers remain there without fear. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and endurance, and I know that your last works are greater than the first. Now Jesus talks about deeds, as he also did in the letters of Ephesus, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
he is thoroughly acquainted with the labors of love the believers in Thyatira have shown to God and to their neighbors. These are expressions of external qualities of service and endurance. Jesus summarized the law by saying, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul makes the second one of these the primary rule. And so does James by calling it the royal law. The Christians in Thyatira visibly demonstrated love to the neighbors and faith and trust in God. The church could receive no greater praise than that given in the words, your last works are greater than your first. This means that the works of love, faith and service and endurance were constantly increasing. With respect to love, Thyatira received words of commendation, while Ephesus received words of condemnation. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Verse 20. However, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, the one who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my servants, to commit fornication and to eat food offered to an idol. Now here's a sudden switch from praise to rebuke. And this is because of a lady, or shall we just call her a woman? Is she entitled to be called a lady? Jezebel. And you know the name Jezebel, by the way, no parent, mother or father, will ever call the daughter, their daughter, Jezebel. No one will call his son Judas. Spanish-speaking people have the name Jesus, Jesus. But no one will say, my son's name is Judas. The name Jezebel refers to the wife of King Ahab. She was a princess from Sidon. Jezebel urged Ahab to worship the pagan god Baal and the goddess Asherah and to construct a temple and a sacred pole. The woman in Thyatira is referred to by the name of the wife of King Ahab and called herself a prophetess. The New Testament reveals that women prophesied this woman held an influential post in the church because she was a teacher. But her instruction was deceptive. And this is one of the difficult tasks that you pastors will have in the church. When you have a person who begins to be influential, then be given the rank of teacher, and then you hear and find out that the teaching is not in accordance with the Word of God. And you as pastor will have to deal with this. You have to do it tactfully. But if it is not the Word of God which is taught, you will have to say, no more. That's firm. That's discipline. This lady, woman, 
This woman persuaded the church to engage in illicit sexual relations at the temple of an idol to eat the food that was offered to the idol. No wonder that this woman is given the name Jezebel because of her namesake. Under the guise of, the, of religion, the people fell into the sin of sexual immorality with all its, the, its dire consequences and into the sin of apostasy by eating food in pagan temples. We are unable to identify this Jezebel. We know that Lydia, seller of purple, came from the city of Thyatira. But now notice, Lydia became a Christian in the year 50. Jezebel taught in Thyatira in the mid-90s, identifying the two women as pure speculation. Undoubtedly, Lydia, before her conversion, was a guild member and had to resolve the problem of choosing for Christ in the guild. The woman called Jezebel may have had a business interest in Thyatira. Then we read about the intent of the followers of Balaam, Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and Jezebel, and find that they are the same, namely to deceive God's people by persuading them to adopt a lifestyle that would allow them to be accepted in the world and to continue membership in the church. You cannot serve God and mammon. Impossible. You can't have two masters. By accommodating themselves to the lifestyle that a guild required, the church members no longer had to, fear, had to fear being ostracized. But the Lord says, no one can serve two masters. James even puts it stronger and he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Verse 21, And I gave her time, but she does not want to repent from her fornication. Verse 22, Look, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'm casting those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of the deeds. And then 23, And I will kill her children with disease, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, the word children does not necessarily mean small, underage people. No, we're talking here figuratively. The children are the woman's followers. And I note, just before footnote 64... I have translated the Greek words that literally read kill with death as kill with disease to indicate the cause of death. And I take this by way of Ezekiel 33:27. They will die of a plague. All the churches, the seven and the universal church, all the churches will hear about the great distress with which these sinners are afflicted. They know that Jesus is the one who searches hearts and minds of all people, for nothing in a human being is hidden from his sight. 
the Greek text literally reads, he searches kidneys and hearts. Now, we don't talk that way. That's an idiom. That's not our idiom. Our idiom is minds and hearts. Jesus meets out both punishment and rewards. And here the judgment on Jezebel and her followers is swift. For the punishment is in his is in accordance with sins of fornication, adultery, and idolatry. Because all the churches know about the judgment and its execution, the conclusion may be drawn that this text does not primarily refer to the final judgment. Verses 24-25 And I am speaking to the rest of you who are in Thyatira, as many as... Hold not this teaching and have not known the so-called depths of Satan. I place no other burden on you. In any case, what you have, hold fast until I come. The so-called depths, the deep things of Satan. Whose phraseology is this? Some suggest that the writer is scornfully accusing the erring members of the church of having fallen into the trap of knowing and practicing the deep things of Satan. Others think that they are the deceitful words spoken by Jezebel, repeated by her adherents who say to the rest of the congregation, you must know the depths of Satan. The pagan world in that era worshipped the serpent as the symbol of Satan. Also Gnostics said that they knew the deep things and were the initiated ones. This is the opposite of Paul's teaching that the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Knowing this, the faithful Christians in Thyatira would hardly be enticed by the bold invitation to know the depths of Satan. It remains difficult to determine the origin of these words. Jesus says, I place no other burden on you, Gentile believers. The burden is to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That is Acts 15, 29. The above-mentioned sentence stands more or less by itself. Some translators have placed it in parentheses, the NIV and others. But then the first word in the next sentence must be deleted, and that ought not to be. Beckwith, a commentator, conservator, presents a commendable translation of this and the next sentence by saying, quote, I put upon you none other weighty admonition than this, namely, Hold fast what you have, end of quote. And what do they have? They have the sum total of the Christian faith as deposited in the Holy Scriptures of which the apostolic decree was a part. With the inclusion of the Apocalypse, these people received the complete canon of the Old and New Testaments. They were the recipients of the full text of God's written revelation. Another promise, and that's the end. 
verses 26 and 27. To everyone who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give authority of the na- over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as earthen vessels that are broken to pieces. The very first thing you observe is that the overcomer receives authority over the nations. And this is from the one who himself said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is Jesus who rules on the face of the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, and who is now giving that authority also to his followers. So the first promise to the overcomer is buttressed by an allusion and a citation from a messianic psalm, namely Psalm 2, verse 8, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The wording and meaning of this psalm are troublesome. The citation is a free rendition of the Hebrew text of Psalm 2, verse 9, You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, here's an interesting point. The shift from the second to the third person aside. The Septuagint text of the first clause has the Greek word poimanes. Poimanes. Which John has adopted and which should be translated, you will shepherd. Now we can see that Jesus is the good shepherd. But it is translated here as you will rule because the context suggests that the verb has a negative connotation. The task of the shepherd is to care for his sheep and that includes protecting them from harm. Thus he rules by way of his rod made of oaken wood, hard as iron, and with it he attacks anything and anyone who is bent on hurting his sheep. Now, the parallelism in the second part of the citation, as earthen vessels that are broken to pieces strengthen the concept of ruling forcefully. Forces opposing the advancing gospel of Christ will be dealt blows with a hard as iron rod in the hand of Christ. The wording taken from this messianic psalm pictures a royal scepter of Christ that symbolizes his authority to rule, to exercise discipline, to mete out judgment. With Christ, the believer who overcomes will have authority to rule, to discipline, and to judge. Verses 28 and 29. And as I have received authority from my Father, I will give to every overcoming, overcomer the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. David tells us about the bright morning star. And Jesus says, I am the root 
and descendant of David, the bright morning star. You find references in Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9. And you find references to Numbers 24, 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. The symbol of the scepter led to that of the star. For both are symbols of royalty that the believer shares. The saints rule with Christ and shine brightly as morning stars. And that is chapter 2. We are making progress. We are going on to chapter 3 where we have the letters to the church in Sardis, to the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea. So we begin with the church in Sardis. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your works, you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus identifies himself differently in the opening sentence of each individual letter. Here he reveals himself with a combination of the initial greeting of the book, the seven spirits, a phrase taken from his appearance to John, the seven stars. The seven spirits describe the fullness of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus is sending forth from the Father. Jesus says that he has the seven spirits, that is, he has received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and exercises authority over him. He commissions the Holy Spirit to make both believers and unbelievers know him and to fan the flames of renewal in churches that are waning. The Spirit, therefore, is the agent to blow new life into a dying church here of Sardis and to stimulate indolent members to action. The phrase, the seven stars, also occurs in the letter to the church in Ephesus. But there the believers had lost their first love and had fallen from the spiritual height. Here they are declared spiritually dead, which is far worse. We talk about the ashes, and among the ashes you find dying embers of coal. That is a picture of the church in Sardis. The entire church, almost the entire church, had capitulated to the surrounding world of pagan religion and Judaism. And instead of being an influence on the culture, it had become influenced by that culture. No wonder that Jesus described it as being dead. The church in Sardis had become a non-entity because it failed to contribute to the advance of the gospel and therefore this church suffered no persecution because the people who opposed Christ said it is not even worth attacking these people. They're gone anyhow. 
verse 2 and 3. Be alert. Strengthen the things that remain and are about to die. For I have not found your works brought to completion before my God. Remember therefore how you received and heard the message. Keep it and repent. Therefore if you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you do not, do not know at all in what hour I will come upon you. The first command is to be vigilant. The inhabitants of Sardis would immediately recall their history. I have skipped the history, but there is a history of not being alert. The Greek text stresses the continuous present to indicate that the church must always show itself to be alert to internal and external dangers. False teachers inside the church, false teaching coming to them from the outside. Second command is to begin the task of strengthening the people and the things that still function in the church. To be active instead of inactive. Jesus wants to strengthen them so that both agent and activity still left in Sardis are reinforced. The works of faith and love practiced by a few devoted members have the potential of dying out. Incidentally, the wording of this clause echoes God's instruction to Israel, you have not strengthened the weak. Jesus examines the activities of the church in Sarnas as God weighed Belshazzar on the scales and found him wanting. And then we have the expression, brought to completion. For I have not found your works brought to completion. What is meant? Here's the explanation. No Israelite might offer a blemished animal to the Lord. For an animal had to be without blemish that is whole. So the Christians in Sardis had to present their works before the Lord as perfect sacrifices. Jesus uses the possessive pronoun my, my five times when he speaks of God. Subordinate to God, he fulfills his mediatorial role. Jesus says, Remember therefore how you received and heard the message. Keep it and repent. The verb to remember seems to point not to the immediate past of a few years ago, but to the distant past of more than a generation. If the gospel was brought to Sardis in the mid-fifties, and John wrote Revelation in the mid-90s. Forty years had passed. Next. The Greek has the perfect tense of the verb to receive to indicate that considerable time had elapsed. First generation Christians had put their faith to work, but the second generation just rested on what had happened in the past. Hence, Jesus gives the command to keep on remembering what their parents had done because the first generation received the message of salvation, heard it, and obediently followed its instructions.
The second generation still have the gospel message, but now they are told to safeguard it. Jesus is not saying that God's word must be safely kept on the shelf or in a drawer, but that its teachings should be known, followed, and obeyed. Thus he commands the readers and hearers to obey his gospel and to repent of their inactivity and indolence. The verb to keep relates to the gospel and the verb to repent to the radical change of the inner self. And now I add, today the Bible is a bestseller and millions of people purchase it. Although many people read it regularly, only some obey its teaching. In Japan, the bestseller is the Bible. And yet, it doesn't make an impact. If I say that 1% of the Japanese population is Christian, I think that I'm a bit too optimistic. And by way of society... The Japanese have controlled the people. One of the graduates of this institution, a Japanese, is a pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church near Osaka. I visited him twice in the 1980s. But six weeks ago, two months ago, he sent me an email and said, Please pray for us. Because by way of parliament, the Japanese government has reintroduced and legalized emperor worship. And... The flag of the Second World War has been reinstated. And then he began to explain and said, In the schools, all the children have to bow down to the emperor, the teacher included. And if the teacher does not bow down, she is dismissed. And the children are punished. One other thing. This particular Japanese has children. He's the pastor. And I said, well, how are the children doing? He said, they live in difficult times. And then he explained and said, Sunday mornings from about 9 o'clock till noon all Japanese children must come together for national instruction. And if they don't they're ostracized. Now what do you have Sunday morning between 9 and 12? You have worship services. 
In other words, they ban or make it impossible for Japanese children to go to worship services. And that's Japan today. Satan is alive and well. It reminds me a little bit of Sardis. We're talking here about the difficulty of trying to live a Christian life. Jesus says, repent. Be alert. I come like a thief and you do not know at all in what hour I will come upon you. Here's a warning. A stern warning to repent as given to Ephesus, Pergamum, and now also to Sardis. This means that in three instances the people's repentance and Jesus' coming ought to be interpreted against the historical background of that time. In the present context, the coming of Jesus appears imminent and unexpected. He is coming as a thief. This is a common theme in the New Testament, either referring to immediate punishment or to the second coming of Christ. Here the historical context points to impending judgment. Failure to repent would inevitably lead to the Lord's swift reproof. The people in Sardis did not have to wait until Christ's promised return. Should they fail to repent, his unexpected appearance would be that of a thief coming and whose time can occur any time. Verse 4, however, you have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. A few names, a handful, that's all there is left. The church has almost died. And what does Jesus say? They have not soiled their garments. They have not participated in the culture of their day. The color of white means that they are not besmirched by the sins of adultery and idolatry. They walk with the Lord as exemplified in the life of Enoch. Genesis 5, and 24. The devoted followers of Jesus will walk with Him are dressed in white garments and that color, white, signifies purity and holiness. Their white garments are a covering that the Lord gives them as a robe of righteousness. These faithful few are worthy. Their own so-called good works are nothing but filthy rags. But by listening obediently to Jesus' voice and following in His footsteps, they, through His atonement, are declared worthy. worthy. Verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> the one who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will never erase His name from the book of life. And I will confess His name before the Father and before His angels. Let anyone who has an ear to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. What do we do 
at the bottom of page 153, what do we do with the clause, I will never erase his name from the book of life. And people will come to you and say, now see, you say, once a child of God, always a child of God, and here you have the sentence, I'll never erase his name from the book of life. So this must be possible to erase a name from the book of life. And my answer is, not so. The Greek tells me very clearly, I will never, no, never erase your name. It is a promise of reassurance. You don't have to worry. God is saying, your name engraved in the palm of my hand is there. My, na my eyes are always fixed on that name. Don't worry. It's assurance. The wording book of life is significant because it differs from that of civil register. The one is in heaven, the other is on the earth. In Revelation, the book of life is where the names of those who have received the gift of eternal life are written. In the Old Testament, to be erased from the book on earth means to die. That is to be blotted out from the civil register. And then we have, I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. This is the word of Jesus spoken during the his earthly ministry and repeated with minor variations. Here they are. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10:32. I will tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Luke 12, 8. And then, from an apocryphal work, Second Clement 3, 2, The one who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father. And then last, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The repetitive refrain recorded in all the seven letters. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.